Hello and welcome to Vista Talks, interesting discussions with interesting people from all around the world. I'm your host for today, Simon Hodgkins, and I'm delighted to be joined by none other than a special guest, Mark Pollock. Mark is an explorer, collaboration catalyst, and international motivational speaker. Uh, you're very welcome today, Mark. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's move on. Let's get on to the show. I've got a lot of questions to ask you, but let me first introduce you to our audience. Um, after you lost your sight in 1998, you became an adventure athlete. You competed in ultra-endurance races across deserts, mountains, the polar ice caps, and including being the first blind person to race to the South Pole. Uh, I know you've won silver and bronze medals for rowing at the Commonwealth Games, and you've been described, if I'm right in saying, by Microsoft CEO uh, as one of the most inspiring people uh, he'd met after you were discussing the ways new te uh, technologies changed how people can learn. Um, you've appeared on uh, the world, some of the world's biggest media stages and continue to do so. Uh, things like CNN, the BBC, of course, uh, Hub Culture at Davos or the World Economic Forum, among many, many other things. And I mean, your constant drive, Mark, it's an inspiration to all of us uh, on the occasion of the Think Global Forum Summit Week, which, you know, um, I was uh, involved in and, and mm. helped set up uh, from many years ago now. But you you were a tremendous uh, keynote speaker for us, a special guest speaker and ran a fantastic masterclass about turning challenges into opportunities for all our hosts and guests as part of that Think Global Forum Summit Week. Um, everything you do, uh, and I'm going to quote you, I'm going to quote here, <laughs> is about inspiring others to build resilience and collaborate with others so that they together they can achieve more than they thought possible. And I think never was that more uh, understood and communicated well at, than it was at the Think Global Forum Summit Week. Uh, the audience the guests, the feedback that I still receive to this day from that event that we held is it's it's phenomenal. So thank you. Um, yeah. So let's let's get started. Let me let me start asking you some questions that I've got for you, and uh, let's see how our conversation progresses today. So tell me, I've read out a lot of stuff there. I've I've talked about things that I know about you. How do you fit all this in? How do you lead this fast-paced life and get it all done, Mark? Yeah. Well, look, it's. Uh... It is it is the battle for for us all to to do all the things that, that that we want to do, and there 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 are never any shortage of opportunities. But you you mentioned there uh, what I call my why statement. Everything I do is about helping people build resilience and collaborate with others so that together they achieve more than they thought possible. And that really does sit over everything that I do, and. It helps me to rule projects in and out. So if they if they're not about resilience, collaboration, and performance or achieving more, uh, I either don't do them, or if I do get involved in projects that don't fit that, I find them a real struggle. So I kind of start both from a personal perspective and in my organisation. We start with that why, and we build a, a clarity stack. So I work on four year 
planning cycles for our for our business and the reason it's four years is five years feels like it's too far away and three years feels like you know you're just getting to what you wanted to be doing and then it's you got to do a new strategy so it's the olympic principle of the four-year strategy then all my team have key result areas which are annual and those key result areas we just have four or five uh, points key result areas that if we look back at the end of the year and we've done those things that link with the overall four-year plan, we'll be happy with those. We bring those down into clear goals on a monthly basis, which link with the key result areas. We bring those clear goals down into weekly priorities and then daily actions. So this kind of clarity stack means that everything I'm doing is directing towards ultimately my four-year plan, which links very closely with that that why statement and i suppose you know you might you might say well okay well, that's just that's just the way you go about it but the reason i go about it in that fashion is because if we don't have that kind of clarity what happens in our sophisticated human brains is that we start thinking about the direction we should be going in the in fact the prefrontal cortex particularly that makes us human that allows us to have logical reasoning and self-awareness just takes over. And instead of getting on and doing what we're supposed to be doing, we start thinking about it, you know, analysis mode and supposed to get it in, in, as opposed to doing mode. So I suppose the way I, the way I try to get the things done that ultimately roll up in and compound into bigger and bigger achievements is by having that clarity stack setting very clear goals allows me to maintain motivation it allows me to you know continually have a uh, create a stop doing list to take out the things which are a distraction and uh i can i can confirm that i'm uh, it is a real live daily activity to try and uh, banish the distractions and stay focused on the <laughs> on the on the goals well, thank you. That that's given me a little glimpse of an insight into how you managed to fit all of this uh, hectic uh, schedule and things that you're involved in. In, and yeah, I particularly like the uh, the stop doing list. That's really good. Yeah. Um, so let me let me let me throw another quote at you if I can, because I know you like the the quote: um, "He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how." So do you want to unpack that a little bit? Tell me mm. a little bit about why that's such an inspirational quote for you, why that really means a lot, you know? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, su I suppose I've, I've, I've spoken, just touched a little bit on, on the neuroscience of why and clarity uh, just a moment ago, but people have been thinking about these questions for a long time, um, world religion, um, who, who are all in co competition for the, you know, the, the the big thinking over the years, but the philosophers as well, they were thinking about these issues. So you have you have you have people asking why and trying to come up with an answer for from a philosophical or a religious perspective for years and years. And then we move to the very, very early psychologist, um, Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a self-appointed psychologist. He was really a philosopher, uh, but he reckoned that he was a he was the first psychologist. And he said, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. The idea that if you know why you're doing what you're doing, you can put up with the tough stuff. So in my case, 
in sport previously, uh, racing to the South Pole or rowing hours and hours and hours, or now in our very, very long project to cure paralysis in our lifetime. Um, there are no short-term, very few short-term wins along the way. And much of the big projects, they're difficult. Um, challenges appear along, along the way, but he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. So that's why I'm, I think it's so important to think about our why statements, not as a uh, not as a marketing line, not as a, an explanation of, of what we're doing at the particular time or what we think we should be doing at a particular time or, you know, the, the nice stack of generic values or the generic purpose and mission and purpose and all that stuff. Like, why are we doing what we, why are we really doing what we're doing? Because if you, if you can answer that, um, uh, you can put up with the tough stuff along the way, which would, which will inevitably be there. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, so talking about tough stuff, um, Obviously, you've got your own tough stuff, and we, I'm sure we'll touch on some of that. Uh, but I, I want to just bring it up to up to sort of the last year or so that we've all been living through. You've got this COVID nineteen, the the global pandemic, lockdowns, reopenings, uh, and it's had an impact on a lot of people. Mm. Um, for some, you know, psychologically wise, physically wise. Um, and in, in a recent LinkedIn post that, that you, you wrote, you, you said something along the lines of, you know, in the midst of a crisis, we've, we've still got to find a way to, to move forward. Um, and that was almost despite the excruciatingly slow progress and the unbeatable odds sometimes. So over the last year and a half, has that fundamentally changed the way you've had to operate? How have you been approaching this? And you know what may, what what inspired you to write that that piece in LinkedIn? Mm. Well, uh, this strangely is my specialist subject, uh, uh, and I'm having a. Uh, unfortunately, I'm I'm finding the conversations that I'm having with people right around the world and all our clients and friends and family, we're having this shared experience where this challenge of COVID-19 has, has chosen us. And I'm reflecting on what happened when I was 22, when I went blind, that challenge chose me. And, but I'll go into what happened afterwards in a moment, but Blindness chose me. I had to respond to it. Uh, when I was 34, I fell out a window and broke my back again. I had to respond to that challenge. And then the pandemic hit and I had to respond to that challenge. Um, and what I noticed from a personal perspective in my own responses, there is a pattern. And that pattern is that I very quickly confront the facts what is the new reality? I'm blind, it's not going to change. I'm paralyzed, it's not going to change. We're in lockdown and there are no live conferences to speak at, uh, or at least in-person conferences. So what are the facts? And for me, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Not just the problems, but what, that's easy. But 
what's good what's good here on the ledger what's difficult on the ledger what's what's in between so i start with confronting the brutal facts i then go on to well, what can i do about it what agency do i have here so i anchor myself with a sense of control by accepting that i've got some options even if they're not perfect and in relation to the quotes that uh, that i put up on on facebook it was it was in relation to uh, Shackleton, uh, the early polar explore, uh, exploration stories, and and really in in exploration in bl- the aftermath of blindness, paralysis, and the pandemic, the danger is that we get caught in in the moment, and we become focused on the crisis, or or we get caught in survival mode. And in fact, what we need to do is extend the timelines, extend the timelines well beyond the crisis, well beyond uh, in the pandemic case, not just lockdown, but also lockdown, then coming out of lockdown. What's that going to mean when we all go back to work? What's that going to mean for society, for our, for our businesses in offices? Because people were worried about that as well. It, it's maybe not two years. It's maybe not three years. It might be four years. It might be an Olympic cycle to get out of this pandemic. So, right. So for me, I'm running this at a macro level and at a micro level, I'm going facts, anchoring, and extending timelines so I have something to go for. That is hope, facts, anchoring, and hope. I really like that. Uh, the extending timelines is really making me think here. Um, so, yeah, no, great advice for anybody um, who's and, particularly struggling at the moment. You know? And, Simon, I might, I, like, you know, I've looked at all the re- the philosophy, the psychology, the neuroscience around this, but the reason I did was because for, I was in hospital for 16 months after I broke my back. And for the first six months, I only thought about survival, like literally survival, that is hour to hour, day to day, maybe week to week, but no longer than that. I was having wave after wave of kidney and heart infections, blood transfusions, all this, but, but very quickly. I became I became a patient. Now, a year before I had raced to the South Pole, yeah. so you know, in the context of this crisis, things switched, and I rapidly became focused on survival, just a patient. And it wasn't until six months in, when a a businessman who offered to support me with some of my um, some of my rehabilitation, he was going to pay for some of it. So there's a financial. Uh, uh, he had skin in the game. He was going to pay for something. And he demanded that I extend my timelines because he wanted to know what he was going to pay for when I got out of hospital. And ultimately, he did support me to, to get back in, into normal life with some of my robotic legs and rehabilitation, which we might talk about in a minute. But, but the point is, there was a very clear distinction where I was facilitated to focus on the problem by all the caregivers, which I needed. You know, we need a bit of that in the beginning when the crisis strikes. But we also need to, at some point, stop and say, we're going to look up and we're going to look forward and we're going to extend timelines beyond this moment. And, uh, you know, it, that, that's, that's when things start to improve. No, that's, that's very valuable because it, it, it doesn't all come at once, right? There are stages yeah. to this. Yeah. No, thank you. Well, look, we'll, we'll come on to the other points that, you, that you've mentioned there, because I do want to tease those out. But I first wanted to ask you about, you know, you were elected to the World Economic Forum as a young global leader. 
And I know you've also served on the Global Futures Council on Human Enhancement. Could you maybe share a little bit about what, what you've been involved in there? Um, yes, well, I, I kind of, uh, I, I laugh when I, you know, World Economic Forum, Young Global Leader, there's a sort of world and global in the, t- in the title. And Well, I, you know, I love that, of course, Mark, you know, I mean, why wouldn't I love that? You know? Well, absolutely. You know, I, I suppose the, the, the only reason I may be qualified to be elected into that Young Global Leader group um, was due to my uh, world-class expertise in acquiring disabilities, first blindness, then paralysis, you know, <laughs> and, and perhaps... Perhaps the work that I've now been doing to to try and cure paralysis, but I suppose I come from a sport sports background, a competitive sport. When I went, I was a, I was a rower. I was rowing internationally. I went blind. I got back into rowing. Won the medals at the Commonwealth Games. I then became an adventure athlete. I got into expedition racing and did my forty three day expedition race to to the South Pole, and. To be a sportsman and to be someone particularly in expedition racing, you need to turn up on a daily basis and do the work. You know, you need to do the training, you need to put a team together in order to, to, to get there. You, you rarely, if ever, do it on your own. You need to raise money. You need to tell the story. Right. Uh, and then you need to go and do it. Now, when I broke my back, adventure racing, and it was particularly adventure racing as opposed to just going and do, doing expeditions when I became blind and paralyzed I, I couldn't I couldn't go and compete now I did go and try um, and I'm working on a project uh, uh, which I might tell you about in, in a minute but I couldn't do the adventure racing but I found that I could apply the same skills to a new expedition this time to bring people together to cure paralysis in our lifetime and that is turning up in well, building relationships with scientists and technologists, acting as a human guinea pig for them to test their technologies on, turning up every day, putting the team together, raising the money, telling the story. So I, so I was applying the same skills that I'd learned in sport and expeditioning to a completely new environment, but still exploration in my mind, this time to bring technologists and scientists and investors and philanthropists together to cure paralysis. And I think... I think it was because of that work, um, because of that very small uh, ex- yeah, exploration as a generalist, bringing experts together that that maybe um, allowed the world allowed me to find a place in the World Economic Forum and in this uh, group of young global leaders, which is a group within the World Economic Forum, and indeed serve on the Global Futures Council on human enhancement as we explore that sort of intersection where humans and technology collide. So it was a huge surprise to me to, to get the email. In fact, I thought it was spam originally, but uh, ultimately that network has allowed me to help a scientist to raise $15 million to commercialize some of their technology, which is, I think, by the end of next year, uh, we, they, will have the technology with paralyzed people um, in a commercial environment as opposed to a research environment. Uh, yep, phenomenal. And so your this mission, I mean, it, I mean, 
you certainly pick big missions, Mark. You know, now this mission to cure paralysis in your lifetime. I mean, that's a huge ambition. Uh, and then you, you've touched on this sort of, you know, raising money and the Silicon Valley organization. Mm-hmm. Could you maybe unpack a little bit for me? When you know you 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 made a comment at a previous uh, answer about robotic legs, and maybe just could you just share a bit more information here? Because some of the work you're doing with these Silicon Valley organisations is quite incredible. Uh, yeah, well, look, lying in hospital best practice is that you learn how to get into your wheelchair, and you learn how to live an independent life, which is absolutely necessary. You know, we need that, but that's where it ends. People learn to go from the hospital bed into the wheelchair right. and live meaningful, independent lives. And that, that is one track. That's, an, that's the acceptance track, which we need. But I've always felt, maybe with that, inspired by those stories of exploration, that, that human beings also, we need a hope track. We need acceptance and we need hope. And in that hope track, I started to go to, particularly to California, uh, we just found a cluster of activity, quite independent, but it seemed to be uh, in the West Coast of America. I started with aggressive physical therapy to try and uh, break down the walking movement and maximize what might be left in my nervous system. So just physical exercise, really. Mm-hmm. And I can do that on a, on a daily basis. We then layered on uh, in San Francisco robotic legs at a company called Exobionics to allow me to stand and walk with motors at the knees and the hips. And we helped stress test that device. I was the leading test pilot, uh, which really means I was pushing it to its limits and breaking the aluminium and the parts of it, and they were replacing it with steel. And I suppose we helped in the development. Most interestingly, we came across a group in UCLA, and they were using electrical stimulation of the spinal cord to supercharge the nervous system and allow for voluntary movement. And uh, back in 2014, I I got their technology and I got the robotics company to work together. And I became the first person in the world to be able to voluntarily move my legs because of that electrical stimulation. So as I did more with my legs, the robot did less intelligently in real time. Uh, And over the period, we found that my muscles were rebuilding themselves. My heart rate was going up. I was using my damaged nervous system. Wow. And it was all going well. But that company couldn't get the finance to commercialize their device, the spinal injury or the spinal stimulation company. They just couldn't get it together to commercialize their technology. And we helped them get $15 million uh, and they're now on track to to get that into the clinic. But the interesting thing, which I think is relevant for us all, is that we just assumed that everyone working in the area of curing paralysis, from scientists to technologists to philanthropists to charities to governments to investors, that they that they would just naturally work well together, that they would naturally collaborate. But actually, we found that there was a pattern of fragmentation destructive competition and erosion of trust, which just seemed to be unnecessarily extending the timelines to get any of these research findings out into the world. So instead now of raising money to give to scientists, what we're trying to do is put a a knowledge network of 
leadership experts, negotiation professionals, particularly negotiation professionals, uh, behavioral scientists, performance psychologists, a network of people together so that we can help create the conditions for collaboration, allow for worthy rivals, if not destructive competition, and help to enhance trust amongst these groups to reduce the timeline to commercialization from perhaps 50 years to 10 years. Uh, that seems like a reasonable number. Yeah, I mean, my thoughts are somewhere between, you know, you're sort of the next Tony Stark to, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it is incredible. You've got all these sort of uh, great thinkers, scientists, you know, uh, people working with robotics, and yet it's almost as though you've had to sort of help the, you know, be the conduit to bring some of this together. Mm. Um, and I think that that network of people and, you know, of course, shrinking the timeline to, um, I'm going to say market availability yeah, yeah. from 50 years to 10 years would be incredible. Mm. Um, mm. And yeah, sometimes it, it, it needs somebody, doesn't it, that can help corral this communication, this network together to, to really, um, as you say, to this, this goal of, of curing paralysis mm. in your lifetime. And mm. I mean, it, it's, funda it's fundamentally uh, important work uh, for lots of people around the world. But, um, you know, Simon, I, it, uh, there's, a, there's a tension there because yeah. on, on one hand, you don't get world-class breakthroughs without a particular type of person or group of people. So, you know, the robotics yeah. people are absolutely world-class and they right. necessarily must focus on robotics, the electrical stimulation equally, world-class. We, we shouldn't expect them to understand how Wall Street works nor should we necessarily expect Wall Street guys to understand about electrical stimulation. So therefore, they all speak different languages. And yeah. you can raise money to give to scientists. You can raise money to invest commercially. It's quite difficult to make a case that the value is in getting world-class uh, competitors to spend a little bit of time looking sideways to collaborate. And that requires a little bit of intervention because we want world-class competitors, but we want them to find a way to work together. And there's yeah. a tension there. Yeah, yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I mean, on a, on a, on a, on a different scale, I, I do see that even in the Think Global Forum, which you've kindly been part of, um, where we, we could have, you know, people who have been, working in a corporate uh, global organization for 25 years, sitting next to somebody who's working for a very well-funded, you know, VC-backed Silicon Valley company. Mm. They're in the same space, but coming at it from two different perspectives. They are, for all intents and purposes, competitors. But the amount of learning and the amount of uh, collaboration that happens is incredible. And mm. I can only begin to imagine what this will mean uh, for the area of focus that, that you're focused on, it, it, it could truly move mountains. Um, well, I hope so. We just got to, yeah. we've got to deliver it now. So <laughs> let, well, let's, let's, let's talk about the, uh, the delivery of things. Cause you, you've got a little bit of media out as well. I know you wrote a book called making it happen and I've seen the, the documentary unbreakable. So tell, tell us, tell me and the audience a little bit about those. Yeah. Well, uh, making it happen is some, some time ago it actually uh, i i don't like to 
promote that anymore because it, I wrote that and finished it prior to breaking my back. So it feels like I'm selling it, selling it short, but we bring the story right up to date uh, with Unbreakable. And that documentary started with the original story. Things were going with a friend of mine, uh, Ross Whitaker, and you know, life was going well. I went blind, rebuilt my life. And 10 years later, we raced to the South Pole. And yeah. that was the documentary we were making. Um, but then a year after getting back from the South Pole, I broke my back and the South Pole documentary hadn't aired yet. And we, we actually called it Blind Man Walking, would you believe? Which is somewhat ironic now that I'm not walking uh, very much. Oh my goodness. But, uh, but, but we decided to carry on filming and that, that evolved into the documentary Unbreakable. And part of the rationale for but the original documentary was just I was in my 20s going into my 30s. I was building my speaking career. That was the purpose of the first documentary. But for Unbreakable, telling the story of our efforts to cure paralysis, it, it was very clear that where we could support the scientists as they tried to commercialize their technology was to socialize the story, to raise the consciousness of what could be, not unlike uh, what we're seeing with the, the not the space race, but the race to Mars. It's exciting. You know, even if you're not interested, you kind of want to be part of it somehow, even though you would never go to Mars. So we're trying to frame the story about curing paralysis in such a way that people are excited and they want to get involved. And that's why we're able to take it to um, the, annual, the annual meeting in Davos or talk about it in Wired or talk about it um, in my speaking engagements. And hopefully use that storytelling, that narrative to get people excited, get people interested and start the conversation to get people working together. I can absolutely see you signing up for the Mars mission, Mark. Sure. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know. The, the South Pole was, was far enough. <laughs> maybe I'm not going to see I can see it. I can see it piques your interest though, right? <laughs> I can see you'd be tempted. Um, so look, listen, uh, you, you mentioned... Um, the, the running to the South Pole there. I mean, I know we touched on it earlier, but that race to the South Pole, you also co-funded, didn't you, Run in the Dark, which I know is, it's. I mean, it, what is it, 2,000 cities or more now around the world? Tell us about that. Yeah, so sport is a sort of foundation of everything for me. And when I when I broke my back, and I, in fact, when I was, I was still still in hospital, just about to get out, we, I didn't know if I was going to work again because my story used to be that I sold the insights I gave were went blind and then I was involved in adventure races. And then, you know, how, how do you tell the story that life was good? It was a disaster, got it back on track. Then I fell out a window and it's all terrible again. I felt, well, you know, I can't, right. uh, there's no insight in that, particularly because I wasn't feeling insightful as I lay in hospital. And originally, we were fundraising to get an adapted van or put a lift in my house. And very quickly I got back into work um, and I started doing what we have, what we have just been speaking about. And i it became very clear that the effort to cure paralysis in our lifetime wasn't going to be a short term uh, endeavor. And we needed to create something outside the landscape of grant giving or grant receiving charities, we needed, well, I felt 
that we needed to create something that could stand on its own uh, two feet. Uh, unfortunate use of language there, but uh, <laughs> something that was in our control. So we built um, Run in the Dark as a, originally as a fundraiser, um, which has then evolved and evolved over the last 10 years. And what it is, is a five or 10 kilometer running event to give people the choice. And it happened originally in 50 cities, but with lockdown, we couldn't gather people at mass participation events. So people ran in 2000 cities from Sydney to San Francisco, and they timed themselves on their app. Companies got involved. They are, we have a global leaderboard. We also have company leaderboards. People used it as a, an employee engagement exercise. So we get people to join this run in the dark on one night in November. And as darkness sweeps around the world, like New Year's Eve, people do their five or 10K. They all, all their times go up onto the app and, they, and then they can all do their selfies and uh, get competitive, uh, competitive about their times. And, um, and then we, we make a margin on that. And people also fundraise for our charity Collaborative Cures. And through the combination of that, I continue as the human guinea pig and Collaborative Cures focuses on bringing people together to cure paralysis. So it's a... Right. It's a, uh, you know, I'm always, I always scratch my head a little bit about the not-for-profit world because, you know, it's always about profit. It's just a question of where does that profit go and what do you do with the profit? And we happen to use ours uh, on our mission to cure paralysis, but uh, we love it. Uh, 25,000 people all around the world in a great global collaboration, which, which ultimately has benefit for what we're doing on, our, uh, on the charity. Just a quick side question on it. Was the pandemic helpful in terms of reaching more people around the uh, world then? Or was it was it a real hindrance not being able to do it, people not being able to do it in person? Uh, well, of course, it forced us to do something that we should have been doing for a long time, and that was get the timing app on everyone's phone so we could create that connection, um, the global leaderboards, which is instant rather than, getting your time yeah, the next yeah, day. Yeah. So, so there were elements of it that were really useful. Selling it was quite difficult because I think a lot of companies were on hold just with the panic of, of COVID. So numbers were down about 20%, but because we weren't having live events, we didn't have to spend like literally tens of thousands okay. on barriers, you know, physical barriers, crowd barriers, stages, these sorts of things. So numbers were down 20%. Um, costs were down maybe 16%. So we weren't far off the profit, but I think, I think we'll do a hybrid model over, uh, going forward. But I think there's value, particularly for some businesses, there's value in getting together, doing the event, and then going for a pizza and a pint. Uh, you know, pizza and a pint if you're in Ireland, maybe, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, a uh a pizza and a glass of wine if you're in Italy. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there's something to do with getting together, but but we, we learned a lot. We learned a lot about the marketing. We had conversations that we wouldn't have had. We, we have a partnership with Facebook around promoting it and so on. So lots right. of learning, lots of lots of panicking, but we got there in the end. Well, that's that's great. That's great to see and uh, great to hear about the, the partnership paying off. So... Yeah, and a hybrid model. There's lots of hybrid happening, isn't there? Um, and I, I, I want to come back uh, to um, the brutal facts in a moment. But while we're talking about sort of non-profits and 
charities and things you're i mean again i'm back to this how do you fill it all in but you're you're an ambassador i know for the um for lots of uh, boards mm -hmm. and the the one that the you know that i know uh, fairly well is the the christopher and uh, dana reeve foundation yeah. i know i know you do work there but also wings for life uk mm -hmm. um the bionics es esco bionics i think exo exo yeah sorry canchi of course uh cybathlon and you've even had a um an honorary award from the the guide dog association didn't you was it the irish guide dog association uh, uh yeah yeah many years ago my guide dog won guide dog of the year in the, U oh, wow. in the uk okay uh, okay so uh yeah the, the guide the guide dogs um fanta yeah. fantastic charity and uh so i know you i know you do quite uh, some great work there on, and serve on a number of boards and and you know you're ambassador for several things um, but I, I did want to come back to, as I was saying there a moment ago, just the back onto the brutal facts for a moment before we, we start to wrap up a little bit. I have a few more things I want to tease out. Um, this, this confronting the brutal facts, which I know is, is central to a lot. And, you know, whether it's the sudden blindness, whether it's falling out of a third story window and breaking your back. Um, and so that the mental timeline and process that you go through when you were mentioning earlier my initial thought was just to survive nothing mm. else mm. Uh, and it changes over time you know from man hauling these sledges in antarctica to you know facing your spinal cord injury um, is the way that you've you've dealt with these things and is it still the way that you deal with things in today's world you know this the, how how much of a confronting the brutal facts are you brought back to on a daily basis? Mm. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, it is a constant practice because we're all humans, yeah. uh, and yeah. you know the first thing the first thing we do is when a challenge appears, we we don't want a challenge to appear, so we deny what's going on. This is Elizabeth Kubler Ross's work on, in fact, on death and dying, but it applies in all sorts of domains. We deny what's going on. We get angry. We bargain or search for a miracle that it'll just all go away we feel self-pity or depressed um and and then we get to some point of resolution or acceptance right. that this is the way it's going to be so these these are very these are real human emotions but i suppose it's it's at what point do we pause and we say okay i can loop around here again and again and again, denying, and we do, denying, anger, blame, uh, bargaining, miracle-seeking, self-pity. Uh, or when do we draw a line under it and start to start to get onto that, that sort of launch pad of facts and then moving on to anchoring and then extending timelines towards hope? But the, the way I think of it, and I, I actually questioned this in intensive care two weeks after my accident when I wrote a blog, and it was titled Optimist Realist or something else. And it drew on the experiences of a, of a prisoner of war called Admiral Stockdale. Um, but the point that he made was that the people who didn't make it in Vietnam in his particular context were the optimists because they kept thinking, you know, we'd be out by Christmas and Christmas would come and go. And, and then when they weren't out, they became disappointed and demoralized. Um, I think he was a realist. And that's what I try to be. And to be a realist, we must 
accept the reality of now and keep hope alive for a better future. The realists run acceptance and hope together. They have as much hope as the optimists. They just do something subtly different. They accept the now, they confront the brutal facts, and then they keep hope alive like the optimists do. But it's this um, twin track of acceptance and hope that, that marks the realists apart from the optimists. And uh, I don't think we, uh, I don't think the pessimists uh, deserve too much examination as a viable option for, for moving forward. Maybe we need one on our board, you know, right. to, to keep us real. Balance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, thank you for, thank you for going into that a little bit more for me. So, so let's, let's bring it sort of home now and let, let's talk about that, the future that we're all, we're all in. You mentioned hybrid events. Um, and we've seen this huge spike, haven't we? We've all had to work from home. A lot of people are no longer in offices. Some are going back, depending on which part of the world you're in. Um, you know, we've Delta variants and lots of news at the moment. But when you think about the future of work, uh, particularly going back to a work location, do you feel, well, what are your views on the amount of work needed here, particularly when it comes to things like accessibility in, in mm. corporate environments and this... Mm this work from home, work from anywhere, go back into the office. How do you see the, the, the what are your thoughts on the, the immediate sort of future that we're facing? It's, it's the big question of the, of the moment, isn't it? I, yeah. you know, I think if I, if I go back to, uh, if I go back to your opening question about, about clarity, um, it's, it's quite easy when everyone's in, in the office nine to five. And, and it was relatively easy to work out what to do when everyone was out of the office. Um, the challenge we're going to now face is when everything turns gray and we need to find clarity within, within the, gray, the gray zone. Now, I'm talking to lots of different leaders in different businesses and they're all approaching it in completely different ways. Uh, I, I think it's, it's yet to be seen what, uh, what works, but what we do know from, uh, much of the work around performance, um, is that people don't, people are not working at their best nine to five people work in blocks. Um, and there's something called the flow state, which so many people will, will know. And the flow state is part of a cycle of struggle, release, flow and recovery. Uh, struggle is whenever it's difficult. Release is when we should go for walks and get away from the computer and have breaks. Flow is the peak performance state where we perform five times better than when we're in the struggle phase. And then we have recovery. And you can't be in the flow state if you're having your colleague tap you on the shoulder or if you're having alerts coming in on your on your email you have to block out time for for flow and it, it requires great focus now i think i think what we're seeing is that some people depending you know depending if you have lots of little children who are doing the distractions and homeschooling <laughs> and so on but there's a great potential to allow people for real focused effort and time around uh, these peak performance states of flow when we get loads of deep work done and we perform five times better than we do when we're in the struggle phase. There is an opportunity to allow for that no distraction. And then there's there's the other part where we need to be 
where it's perhaps better to be together for some for some things and we can get into group flow in those but it, uh, in those situations but it's it's different it's tricky you know everyone's saying two to three days a week but if someone comes in monday to wednesday and the other person's in thursday and friday do they actually never see each other i'm i'm unsure of what it's going to be but what i do know is that whatever happens people need clarity and we need to find clarity within this middle zone of uh, the the hybrid the hybrid workplace people just need to know where they stand and that that doesn't necessarily mean 100% in the office and one or 100% out no that's they're excellent points um i was talking recently just as a, a quick side uh, note to uh, a gentleman called Shane Ryan. He's on the Irish Olympic swimming team. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For Tokyo. And yeah. he, he very kindly spoke at the Think Global Awards ceremony not too long ago. And he was talking about his training regime during the pandemic. And it just, it just resonated with what you were saying there. Because I was talking to uh, the Olympic coach um, fairly recently as well. And he was talking to me about how athletes you don't ring them at certain periods of the day because they're on a rest break yeah yeah and other times of the day they're training and that could be mental and physical training and they're in the flow yeah yeah and it's like what you're saying isn't it with the way we've all been working we we haven't really been focusing on those important times and it just struck me um when the coach was talking that how a corporate environment we don't really build in the rest times at all. We yeah. just work, 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 yeah. go yeah. home. Yeah. So I just, I thought that was particularly interesting, Mark. So thank you. Thank you for your And, and Simon, yeah, even, even if we try to do it ourselves, even, you know, and lots of companies are saying, you got to switch off. Yeah. But, but the evidence that we're seeing is that you've got to switch off, but switch off some other time apart from whenever I'm adding on loads of extra work. <laughs> you know, so there's there's a real leadership question here yeah. about about actually looking at the neuroscience and saying people going for a walk and having lunch with their family and taking ten minutes off to sit in in the garden yeah. mid morning uh, and sleeping and taking holidays these are actually non negotiable high performance activities if you look at the neuroscience because you can have all of your people. You know, and I'm the worst offender, by the way. But you know, we we can just struggle along, and we we can work seven days a week, or we can take no breaks, or whatever you like. But you operate at a level that is five times worse than if you take more recovery, more mini breaks, like you know, short five minute, ten minute breaks, and you get into the flow state. You operate your outputs five times better. The quality of your work the patterns that you recognize that you know the connections that you make in your brain sharper quicker more creative and so on and so on but it but it's a real leadership challenge to really really buy into the idea that release and recovery are high performance activities and it's a non-negotiable no i love i love that mark thank you um so look, every time I hear that Jeff Bezos and his brother are going on their space mission, I'm waiting for your name to be called. I'm convinced you're on a Mars mission with one of these corporate entities. Maybe maybe Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg's got you penciled in. I don't know. But before I end the interview, I wanted to ask you about what's next in the Mark Pollock story. 
because we're coming up to 10 years again mm-hmm. and uh, I'm just interested to to think about what what you, what are you thinking about right now or is yeah. there anything that I've missed that you'd like to maybe share well in yeah I've spoken at length about some of these sporting events and I think when I look back most of what I was doing when I was involved in competitive sport were pretty much every day I was getting into this neurologically addictive state of flow with all of the neurochemicals that are released into the brain when you're in this high performance state. And since, particularly since I've added the paralysis to the blindness, I don't really get into this flow state very often. And I've been working recently with uh, a Formula One team, Mercedes Formula One team, to build a tandem bike with an electric motor to allow me to get into a position where I can cycle with my South Pole teammate in a group of people with an electric motor so that they, um, so that I can uh, cycle in groups of people, not just on our own. We're working with Microsoft to produce feedback data that's accessible for blind people because immediate feedback is a flow trigger. And then we're also working with a, um, uh, with another company, I don't think I can announce them yet. But uh, but it's a it's an online gaming system for indoor training, so that I can connect with other people. And what I'm trying to do is create a bike with immediate feedback and indoor training environment that allows me to pull triggers to get me into flow. And at that point, I'll be able to do greater and greater sporting challenges, and most importantly, gather with the people that I've raced with and against and uh, go for a pint afterwards because the celebration is critical from a neurological perspective as well. Not so much the day after, but it is very, very important to celebrate the wins. Do you, do you know, I've been talking to you now for quite a while. I ask you one question. Is there anything else that you were... And I, you say something that just blows me away. But I think, I, okay, well, that, that's another that's another three hours I could talk to you about. You know, but, well, I'll talk to you again on that once we get yeah, this all sure. built. For sure, yeah. Well... Well, Mark, uh, listen, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a, a privilege and a pleasure once again. Um, I'm extremely grateful and thankful for everything that you're doing. Uh, you're a true inspiration, and uh, I'm, I've, I will always be grateful for the great work that you did for the Think Global Forum and for everything that you do with all the fantastic organizations that you're involved in around the world. And, I, you know, that's genuinely heartfelt. I'm you know, truly inspired by you. Uh, it's incredible. So thank you. Thanks very much for having me on. And thanks, uh, thanks for uh, having me a part of, as part of the forum as well. No problem. So look, uh, let's wrap it up. That's the end of today's show with Mark Pollock. Uh, Mark, as you know, at this stage is an explorer. He's a collaboration catalyst and he is uh, one heck of an international motivational speaker. So please don't hesitate to get in touch with Mark uh, if you're looking for somebody. Uh, but please make sure to tune in again, of course, to the next episode of Vista Talks, where we hope to be bringing you more interesting topics from interesting people from all around the world. Thank you, Mark. An absolute pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.